Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from in a multitude of genres, and you can play them on just about any device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever. And here's a terrific deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get 112263, the new one from Stephen King. Or how about Bossy Pants, the hilarious memoir by Tina Fey, narrated by Tina Fey. Or what about Life, the memoir by Keith Richards. Any one of these books can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome back to the program. It's good to be with you. It's Christmas. This is the Christmas Day episode. Merry Christmas to you all. I hope Santa Claus was good to you. I hope you got what you wanted. Uh, The guest today is Ben Laurie. He's the author of Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. It's out from Penguin. It's a story collection. Uh, Ben has been a contributor at the Nervous Breakdown for a long time. He's a buddy of mine. He's a great guy. He's a great writer. He's a unique writer. Uh, he writes, uh, I don't even know what you'd call them. He writes like fairy tales for adults, you know, fables for the wayward and the disaffected, that kind of thing. And uh, he has a very uh, unique voice and uh, you should read his work. And uh, he and I are going to be talking about all kinds of different things in just a moment. I do want to start, however, by discussing uh, a couple of things, including a recent shopping experience, which uh, yeah, I should add that I wasn't really shopping myself. I was just at the mall Uh, And I do feel a little bit strange mentioning it because I feel like I'm always telling you that I'm at the mall, which isn't really true, uh, but it it seems to be true lately. So uh, I'm at the mall, I'm with my wife and daughter, and uh, we actually started by going to the park. That was the idea. But then my wife said that she needed to return some things, uh, some baby clothes. And so we went to the mall and it was absolute pandemonium because Christmas was approaching. It was a nice day in L.A., 
uh, people were out in full force. And uh, so my wife goes into this store and I'm then strollering my daughter around the mall just to kind of keep her occupied and to, to just keep myself moving. I feel like I need to keep moving when I'm in a mall, uh, sort of like a shark or something. So uh, I'm, I'm strollering. We're moving. My, uh, my daughter then decides that she wants to get out of the stroller and walk because she just learned how to walk and uh, she likes to do that. So I'm holding her hand and she's walking uh, at 15 months old and, and it's pretty cute. She's kind of waving at people and saying hello. And I can't uh, stress enough how many people were there at the mall. We're talking uh, masses of shoppers, you know, almost so many that it was difficult to walk. And I should also mention that this is an outdoor mall that we were at. Uh, we have those in Los Angeles. It's outdoors. And uh, I'm sort of standing there uh, among the throngs. I sort of step off to the side with my daughter. We're taking a break. And then I hear this noise behind me. And it sounds kind of like this, like, <laughs> but, it, but loud. And so I turn around and there's this bearded guy. He's probably about 30 or so. And he's standing there. And he's hyperventilating. And at first I didn't realize that he was hyperventilating. I didn't know what he was doing. I thought like, you know, is this guy mentally disabled or, you know, I didn't know, you know, it crossed my mind though. And so he's kind of looking straight at me with these wide eyes and there's all kinds of fear in his eyes. And uh, he's doing this like hyperventilating thing. And uh, he walks up to me and he says, you know, very quietly, sorry, I'm having a panic attack. There's just too many people. And uh, it caught me completely off guard. It was such a strange uh, and kind of surreal experience. This guy just going, <laughs> and then he just comes up to me and he goes, I'm sorry, I'm having a panic attack. And he's kind of like whispering it to me almost. And I just remember I was just like, oh man, that sucks. And then I just said, uh, take a deep breath, you know, cause he was, he was already walking away, you know, and I didn't have any you know words of wisdom for him. So he walks away and I watch him disappear into Barnes and Noble. Uh, that's where he went. Uh, to, you know, for refuge apparently. And so then my wife comes out, uh, of the store that she was in and I say hi to her and I tell her, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to believe this, but this mall is so crazy that it, this guy just had a panic attack, you know, right here in front of me. And, uh, and she says, who, and I start to describe him and, uh, you know, I say to her, I'm pretty sure he was a writer. I didn't even, you know, I didn't, didn't think twice about it. It just sort of shot out of my mouth. And, uh, you know, I was like the beard, he was kind of pasty. He was a little out of shape and he was having a panic attack at a mall. And where did he go for safety? He went into a bookstore, you know? So then after, you know, as the day went on, I started to think about like, why did I assume that this guy was a writer? You know? And then, and then I started to think uh, about the stereotypical portrayals of writers in, uh, in the world, in narrative and in movies in particular, how writers tend to be kind of like beleaguered angels or, uh, or lovable losers in movies. And it seems to be like always the case, you know, the writer is always like the good friend or the safe crush, uh, like kind of like the reliable guy who doesn't get the girl, but in whom the girl confides, you know, it's always the, like the dude with the beard and the large jazz collection who stands off to the side and makes like witty remarks. So, you know, you think about writer characters in narrative and there tends to be a lack of ego almost always there tends to be a selflessness especially when you uh when you compare writers uh in movies to say uh, actors in movies or musicians as they're portrayed in movies like you see a movie about an actor and the actor as they are portrayed in movies tends to be like melodramatic and narcissistic and, and a little unhinged 
you know, like a, like Joan Crawford and Mommy Dearest or something. And then rock stars have a tendency to be these like preening egomaniacs who overindulge in alcohol and drugs and have an absurdly time or absurdly easy time getting laid and, you know, this kind of thing. And so, you know, it's just, it gets me thinking about how true this stuff is. And, you know, obviously stereotypes are based in some truth, but, you know, when you think about portrayals of writers, you have to ask yourself, you know, who's writing these things, right? It's screenwriters. So screenwriters are naturally bound to have a more sympathetic view of themselves, uh, you know, than just about anybody. So you see these writer characters in movies or in narratives or of any kind, and they, they tend not to have an edge or, you know, I don't know. They're losers, but they're kind of saintly in terms of how they lose. And so my question is, is this really the case? Is this really rooted in truth? Do I embrace this? And moreover, do I try to portray myself in this way, you know, in life, in, in my writing, on this podcast? And, uh, you know, I kind of worry that I do. I start to think about it. I'm like, shit, you know, am I trying to project something similar? Like I'm this beleaguered writer, but I'm a good guy. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying my best. I don't know what's going on. I'm just trying to, you know, do meaningful work that means something. And I'm running a literary website and I'm doing the podcast. And, you know, my website's called The Nervous Breakdown because life tends to be like one collective nervous breakdown. And my podcast is called Other People and the logo's me wearing a gas mask. And that's kind of funny. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, and I don't want to sound like overly neurotic or, or you know, I don't want to like self-denigrate to excess or something like that. I'm just saying that it bears analysis and uh, plus it's Christmas and, uh, you know, you read about this stuff, you know, you read about, uh, I don't know, what am I trying to say here? You read about how to behave and you think about a time like a time of year, like Christmas and about stuff like compassion and how people are and how you might, you know, might try to be. And, uh, you know, you also read like how compassion is good for you, that being selfless is a good thing and it actually benefits you. And like, there's actually, like, there's a real science behind this that, you know, compassionate people, uh, on average tend to live longer and have happier lives and better relationships. So I tend to believe that I've read stuff like that. And then you read this kind of thing and you take it to heart and you try to incorporate it into your own life. And, uh, you know, but then on a certain level, it kind of fucks with me because even when I'm acting selflessly, there's a strong level of self-interest in it. You know, even when I'm doing something really nice, there's still maybe a part of me that might be congratulating myself internally for being such a good guy. Uh, or else I'm like, you know, in some sort of minor way, happy about the fact that I'm going to be happier and healthier and will probably enjoy uh, better relationships because I'm like taking the time to give a sleeping bag to a homeless guy or something. Do you know what I'm saying? So you wonder like, is it actually about helping that guy or is it about helping yourself? And is it okay if it's both, you know? And then you think about, that other line where it's like, you know, it's not really giving unless you're giving without the thought of getting anything in return. But is it even possible to give like that with this kind of knowledge? Do you know what I'm saying? Like even when you're giving something and you're trying to be really nice and no one else is around and it's this perfect scenario and you're thinking, you know, compassion, you know, you're sitting there thinking compassion is so healthy. My soul is being nourished right now. My cardiac health is improving and so is my complexion and so on. So... I don't know. I'm not trying to put a damper on things. I'm just saying that it's confusing. And uh, that's it. That's my line. It's Christmas. I hope you all have a great day. And, uh, you know, if you're not having a great day, uh, you know, hang in there. It'll be over soon. <clears throat> don't take it too seriously. Uh, here's a podcast. You can listen to it. It's my gift. 
It's my compassionate gift to you. Listen to Ben. Uh, he's a good guy. He knows things. And, and I really do mean this. Ben is a, uh, he's a good mind and he will tell you stories uh, about octopi and flying saucers. And uh, he'll tell you stories that will make you feel like a little kid again. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Did you watch that? Or did you close your eyes and kind of turn away while they did it? No, I stared directly at it. You, you can do that. Well, apparently, yeah. But I mean, like when you get like an injection, you're not a, you're not scared of needles or anything like that. No, I'm not scared of needles. No, I, I got over my fear of needles a long time ago. You did, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then after they scrape it off with a knife and and mop up the blood, then they take this little instrument and burn it about a million times, and you smell your skin burning. Wow. So wait, when you said you got over your fear of needles, you 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 never were never an intravenous drug user, were you? No. Oh, okay, no. okay. Um, so yeah, so they, you just had a wart, you went in and got it burned off, and a wart is skin cancer related? No, I, I went in because I was worried that I had skin cancer for other reasons, but then it turned out that I just had a, a wart. But wait, what, what other reasons? You just thought you had like a mole or something? Yeah, there's a mole on my back, which they've been telling me I need to keep my eyes on for 35 years now. It fucks with your... No, I had the same thing. And like, I've had like lots of them removed. You know, not like, I'd say five or six of them removed, and... It's precautionary, but then I'm wondering if, like, my dermatologist is just sort of, like, banking. She's just, like, cash and checks. Like, yeah, I got to remove that mole. It's, like, yeah. 300 bucks, you know, whatever it is. But it's a simple procedure. I don't feel a thing. They go and do lab tests. The lab technician gets their check. It's all a scam. I mean, I get it. You want to be precautionary. But I just, I have such an inherent mistrust of, of doctors. Why is that? I mean, I think it, I guess, I, actually, I do have an answer. It's that I have a bad low back. I did for a lot of years and I went to every kind of doctor and every single one of them told me that they knew what was going on and none of them did. Yeah. You know, I feel like, and they get paid by the procedure, not by whether or not you get well. That bothers me. I'm sorry, Brad. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad that you don't have skin cancer. Yeah, me too. The mole is looking okay. Well, what happened is they, they took the mole off about maybe four months ago, five months ago. And um, it grew back, and when it grew back, it looked really scary. It was like black, the way when you go on the internet and then look about skin cancer. Don't ever go on the internet and look, because as soon as I, it's like a wormhole, you just get sucked in, and mm -hmm. it's bad. So then I went back, expecting the guy to say, hey, nah, there's no, no worries, man. Instead, he looked at it, and he said, and these are his words, he said, oh, my God, 
oh my god he said it twice and i said did you just say oh my god (laughs) (laughs) that's not what you want to hear no and he said yeah i said oh my god oh but it's nothing to worry about i was just surprised it grew back so fast but we have to take this off immediately so then they, they, they cut it out um, a lot deeper than they had the first time, and they got, like, stitches and stuff. Ugh. And then they, would, they took it off to the lab, and then, um, like, two weeks went by, and I was supposed to get the results, and I went in, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're still, we have to do some more tests. So then I went in today, and, and the guy, he was just talking to me about other things for a while. I'm like, hey, did you happen to get the results? Yeah, he's, like, talking about his weekend and yeah. how the fourth was. Yeah, and he's like, no, everything's fine. Turns out he was, uh, it was just plastic. I don't know what that means, but he says it's just plastic, not cancer. So apparently I'm plastic, and that's good. Well, I mean, and yeah, you, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but you don't strike me as somebody who spent like excessive amounts of time in the sun. No, I've never left my house. Yeah, I was gonna say you're a shut-in. What are you worried about? <laughs> no, but I mean, I did. I lived in Colorado. I was always out hiking, and like, look at my arms. Like, I, this is all pre-skin cancer. These uh, red. You need to get those arms removed. I have to have my. <laughs> to have my arms removed physically removed uh but no it's just like this big thing and i'm very conscious of the sun in ways and it's the worst thing in the world the freaking sun the giver of life and it kills you it's an irony i never really looked at it as the giver of life (laughs) i guess it's a big flaming ball Ball in the sky but i mean you know i just i had like i think because i grew up without sun as a child and the weather and in like the midwest and the brutal winters and they don't have sun in the summer they do, they do. You do, and 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 when you when when it comes out, you're so overjoyed. Like I remember spring break, like just getting to go to Florida, which now that I look back on, it, like Florida to me was like heaven, and like everyone in Indiana like wanted to get to Florida, and like now like you basically couldn't pay me to go to Florida, <laughs> like it's lost all of its allure to me, all of its allure. Like I just I don't like it, and I've been back once since, and I'm just like ugh. But uh, there's alligators, though. That's cool. That's cool. I mean, you know, and it's yeah, it's got its redeeming qualities. I don't mean to sound too judgmental, but it's just like I think that the appreciation that I had for the sun then manifested itself in uh, you know living in a sunny climate and going outside and just being like so happy, but like being a little bit reckless with sunscreen and stuff like that. And now I'm I'm pretty pretty uh, cautious, extra cautious. I'm good. Do you wear sunscreen? I don't go outside. You don't go outside. You're not, but you're nocturnal too. You yeah. you roam the streets at night. Yeah. Sometimes I go for walks during the day, and I do wear sunscreen when I do that. You do. What's but your What's your SPF? Are you like 45? As, as high as I can get. Yeah. 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 Like the old joke is that like how high? I mean, how high can it? How high does it get? Does it get into the th- three digits? Yeah, I've seen 120, but I've heard that over 30 is not really. Like, at some point, you just, like, squeeze out a long sleeve shirt. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, do you know what I'm saying? It's like paste. It's like you're just, like, spackling yourself. But yeah. I'd like to get a parasol. I'm always envious of the ladies with parasols. I, yeah, I've thought of that, too. Mm-hmm. Or just, like, having an umbrella. Yeah. Maybe just as, like, an affectation. Mm-hmm. I don't have it like, as a writerly affectation, especially now that uh, you're getting ready to publish your book. And uh, I guess I, I'm overdue in saying I'm talking to Ben Laurie, author of Stories for Nighttime. And some for the day. Right. And I've been uh, plugging it because it's a TMB book club book. And one of the things that continues to, like, you know, uh, echo in my mind is making sure that I get the definite article placed properly in the title of your book. Yeah, it's tricky. It's not stories for the nighttime and some for the day. It's stories for nighttime. Yes. That was conscious. Okay. Are you supposed to say the nighttime or is nighttime just kind of its own entity? 
You can say the night time, right? You mean in general? Yeah. You can say whatever you want. I know, but but is it proper English, Ben? These things concern me. Well, I was going for more of like a a general nighttime as opposed to an actual like not like one specific nighttime or right. Yeah, the, the day is, wasn't exactly the opposite of nighttime in the title. It's sort of a little bit of a different. And and because you feel like a lot of the story. I mean, uh, I guess I should ask you first: Is this like literal? You really do believe that some most of the stories in the book are best read at night after sundown? Well, I think everything's better at night after sundown. You do? Okay, okay. So like taking that into account, uh, most of the stories were written after sundown, or all of them. You wrote. I mean, you work at night, correct? Yeah, I think. You know, my memory is not so good anymore, Brian. Well, neither is mine. But I would say, yeah, probably pretty much all of them were written that night. Yeah. Sometimes in the near the end of the book, I was probably working during the day, too, sometimes. Some for the day. Yeah. So now we're, uh, like, uh, as far as work schedule goes, like, what, what are your hour, working hours, typically? Does it vary? I mean... It varies. I don't even really have a set schedule of any kind. I don't know when I'm going to be waking up or going to sleep from one day to the next. But generally, yeah, I'm working at like three in the morning until eight. Wow, and it's quiet, and nobody's the phone isn't ringing. Yeah, unless you have like night night friends. <laughs> I do. Duke, Duke, Duke is my night friend. Yeah. So he's up too. Yeah, he's up too. So he'll just call you. Yeah, we're speaking of of Duke Haney or Dr. Haney, the author Dr. Haney. Yes. Uh, who's got a book out on the TMB Books imprint called Subversia. He does, which I highly recommend. Which you blurbed, I believe. I did. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're working from three to five, uh, or from three a.m. to like eight a.m. or something like that. And I've talked to you about this before, and it's a great fascination to me because I really do think it's truly unique. In that uh, you'll sit down and write in one shot, and this is how you typically work. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you will sit down and in one shot write an entire short story, start to finish. Yeah. Well, I mean they're very short. You know, they're probably around seven hundred, eight hundred words usually, and. Um, and that's the first draft. I mean, then I edit them for, you know, years and years. So, you, okay, so you really pour over it. Yeah, usually the hardest part is getting the end. Usually the first shot around it, it gets you the first act and most of the second act, and then usually there's like a an ending which is wrong usually the first time around, and then you sort that out afterward. And then who was the short story writer? Wasn't there like a fantasy writer or somebody that you went to see read at the uh, mystery... Oh, and Mystery and Imagination? Yeah, um, that's well, a bookshop in Glendale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dennis Hutchison, he was a short story, he is a short story writer. Um, and he taught a class there on writing horror fiction. So I took that class and started writing. And what was, I mean, didn't didn't he like deliver you some sort of key insight? Or it wasn't like, you know, I don't want to overstate it or anything, but like it was one of those things where you were sort of like thinking about fiction and trying to figure out how to approach it, and he kind of gave you an insight that really sort of opened you up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, before that class, I was a screenwriter, and I was used to sort of working out story ideas, um, sort of as like building blocks, kind of arranging ideas for scenes and moments on a page and trying to figure out a story based around ideas that came out of the blue. It seems totally ass-backwards now that I'm trying to think about it. But, um, and 
what Dennis taught me was to just sit down and start writing at the beginning and write through until it was done and just follow the story and never to have any ideas about what you were going to write or what you wanted to include in it or really look ahead at all and just sort of live the story through as it happened. Stay to I mean, not to sound too touchy-feely, but just stay totally present, watch the character, follow the character or characters. Yep. Let your imagination do its work. Yep. And so you'll sit down and you will have what an image in your head well usually when i sit down i don't have anything at all and then i just sit there and wait for the first idea or image or sentence and then go from there and then it just takes off mm -hmm. i mean usually sometimes if you're lucky yeah do you ever get uh dry spells like where it's like a week goes by and you can't write anything or are you typically pretty i have dry spells where i can't actually sit down you know, where I get too busy or I just don't feel like it. But as soon as I actually sit down, I don't usually have a problem. It comes to you. And then like, you work in this short form. I mean, it's, this is also unusual. Like, these stories are like, like you said, 700 words long, 1,500 words long. Uh, there's a fantastical element to them. They work on, I, I call them like fables for adults. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? I mean, sure. you know, there's something about them that's very unique. And they're, it seems like a unique hybrid, frankly. Uh, do you have a sense of like the component parts of it? Like you're based on your own like tastes. I mean, uh, you, you read so widely, uh, you know, for, I know, you know, Ben and I are, are buddies. So for listeners out there, it's like, you know, uh, I'm your Goodreads friend mm -hmm. and it makes me panicked because literally every day it's like, Ben just read, <laughs> you read like three books a day. It's, no, it's I shocking. Just, I put them up in, in groups. You do. Okay. Yeah. So some of these books are books that you've read in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, in the last couple weeks couple days yeah. <laughs> last couple days yeah. but yeah well you know yeah so uh no i tend to think of it as as just a twilight zone really i think of myself as writing for the twilight zone even though it doesn't exist and they don't know who i am you grew up watching it well i grew up without a tv and then when we got a tv i discovered the twilight zone why was it was a conscious decision by your parents to make a reader out of you my parents we actually had a tv when i was very little and then supposedly it was stolen mm. when I was about three. I remember watching Sesame Street one time when I was really little. I, yeah, they were not big fans of television. And the only reason we finally got a TV when we did was because we got a computer and we got the TV as a monitor. Uh, well, that's, I mean, do you feel like you missed out on anything? Sure. And when we got a TV, I spent six years just watching everything that people had been talking about in school when I was growing up. In high school, I was watching like three, four episodes of Brady Bunch every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing. It's like because it's so pervasive, it was like socially isolating to an extent. Sure. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So, but, but then you just start binging on it, and then you wind up going off to where? You went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. And so you were a great student in uh, high school. Were you like really driven? I wouldn't say I was driven. I would say it was um, not very challenging. Yeah. It was easy for you. Yeah. You're a bright guy. Okay. What are you good at? Like, what was there? Is, is there an area, like a, English, obviously? Were you a science guy? I mean, do you have that part of your brain working, too? I was a math guy. Okay. So yeah. math makes sense to you. Do you think that there's a mathematic... I mean, do you approach the writing of fiction mathematically? Do you deconstruct books in a way that, like... Somebody like me who, you know, is very average at math might not. I don't really deconstruct books that I read at all. 
but when I write, I definitely write mathematically. I mean, I, I write, I draw diagrams for the stories, not while I'm writing them, but afterwards when I'm trying to figure out endings and see why things are working and why they're not, I, I draw diagrams. And I mean, there's sort of an equation that I work with um, that helps me sort of figure out where things have gone wrong or other avenues to explore. Actually, I just got a review of my book today. Someone published on a blog somewhere, which called the stories mathematically inevitable, which made me really happy because I was like, yes, that's what I've been trying to explain to people. That you've been trying to explain what? That the that stories have a, like inherent structure, which is sort of implicit in the premise almost. Like once you write the, I mean, for me, once I write the first sentence, it's like everything is already there. It's just a matter of sort of unpacking it. But I feel like it's already out of my hands once the first sentence has been written. And then it's just like, it's like you have to like decode it almost, or yeah, it's like all I can do from that point on is mess it up. Hey, <laughs> I'm great at that. <laughs> what uh, what did these diagrams look like? I mean, does it look like the the, the scribblings of a madman, or are they really like beautifully done? Are you using a ruler? Like what what is it? Well, I'm not drawing them, you know, to show people. But I mean, they all look the same. They. Uh, it's, a, it's just a three-act diagram. They look, it looks a little bit like an eyeball, kind of. Second act sort of gets wider, and the, and the very center of the story, or the, the middle of the eyeball, is the midpoint of the story. And I don't, it sounds insane, I know. No, but it doesn't. This, this is the thing, is that it actually sounds sane. <laughs> well, yeah, because like most writers, I think they work intuitively, or they're, you know, they're making it up as they go along, or they're struggling with an outline. I guess authors who really do sit there and do the, the gritty work of a detailed outline prior to composition, mm-hmm. those kinds of people might be able to uh, feel similarly, or mm-hmm. you know, I think they're similar to what you do. But for me, or for most uh, writers who work kind of like day by day, making it up as they go... Um, you know, you're kind of, I guess you're kind of a happy medium. You're right in between because you do the make it up as you go. And then afterwards you sort of outline it, Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's unusual, but it's like, I, you know, I, I feel sort of, uh, envious of that mathematical brain and the ability to sort of unpack. Well, I could, I could teach it to you in about 15 minutes. Well, you should, you know, maybe, maybe after this is over with, you can teach me how to do that. Right. So, okay. So you write. You unpack. You say you really do edit for years and years? Yeah. On I some mean, stories? Yeah, absolutely. Some stories have been through... There are stories in the book that have been through probably 70 or 80 drafts. I mean, with just completely different endings. And it's it's figuring out the ending that's the key. Mm-hmm. And I should tell people who haven't uh, had a chance to read the book yet, like, the stories, the language is... Um, I guess you've probably heard this before. Deceptively simple. You know, you don't use an extremely... Uh, complicated uh, prose. No. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's direct language, um, but there's a lot of complexity within it. Uh, can you talk about that? It's just the way you write. I mean, how much how much thought do you put into that? I, I get that if, if you want to call it your style. Well, I don't put any thought into it while I'm working. I mean, there's definitely... I mean, I, I know how I write, and I write that way for a reason. Um, I try to keep out anything that draws your attention away from the story, away from what's happening, uh, or makes you think about things out of order or sort of like backtrack within the story. No flashbacks. No flashbacks, no like backstory, no explanations of what came before. Why? 
I just think it's unnecessary. I mean, stories happen in order. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. It's mathematical. It's yeah. just, it's just, you know, I get it. It just, I want you to be in the story while it's happening and not sort of stepping back and looking at it as like a character standing over there and getting a background on the character and like getting to know them and seeing it all as though it were a play that you were watching. You know, um, I want it happening to you and and I don't want people to think about me as an author being there. I don't want to think, I'm, I don't want them thinking about sentences or words or drawn aside to admire like metaphors or similes or like the ornate like because i feel like sometimes there's that you know you have writers who are super gifted and can clearly write a great sentence but some mm -hmm. of it sometimes it can start to feel like vanity mm -hmm. especially if i like the more cynical i am whatever if the more cynical of a mood I, i'm in i'll read it and i'll be like okay enough already we get it you can write mm -hmm. and you're what you're basically saying is that you're elevating the story above all else yeah. that's it Yes, absolutely. It's all just it's just pure story. And um, pretty much all my stories are like a single metaphor themselves. So I try to not put other metaphors in or add anything that takes attention away from the central fact of the story. You don't mix your metaphors. Right. So like, can you give an example of no. a... No. <laughs> but I mean, no. Like, Just like, if you take a story, what's a metaphor for one of your stories? Like, if you boil it down, you don't know how to do that? I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that? I don't want to do that. That's just, like, tedious? I don't know. It just feels like it's cheating. <laughs> so, yeah. You don't want... It's like the magician who doesn't want to reveal his trick, kind of? I just... <clears throat> I feel like the stories have to speak for themselves and if you can say them in another way then they're then they're not right you know like if someone tells a joke you don't then say hey someone told me this great joke and it was about this and it worked that way and let me tell you a little bit about the backstory of the joke or the theory behind the joke you just you tell the joke you know and then either the joke works or it doesn't but um you have to that tell makes the joke sense. that makes sense it's like de you know deconstructing too much can be Ruinous. Yeah. So, you write the book, or you're working on all these different stories, and then one of the stories that's not in the book was never intended to be in the book. Mm -hmm. Winds up in the New Yorker. Yeah. Pretty much like, there, there's not a better thing that could happen to somebody who writes short fiction, like I, especially short fiction of a literary bent, mm -hmm. in whatever direction. Like that's what every Everybody, I think, who writes short fiction, short literary fiction, thinks of that at least once. Yeah. Or sends in, like, at least one story to the slush pile. Yeah. Had, had you ever submitted there before? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm, sure. Yeah, I, I did it. I mean, everyone's done it. So, uh, how did that happen? Backstory. Like, oh, it happened quite by surprise, right? I got an agent, and she did the whole thing. It really had nothing to do with me at all. There was really not a story. She just read the story, liked it, sent it to somebody at the New Yorker, and they said yes. Um, first, she sent them three of the stories from the book, and they really liked the stories, but they said they were too short and they didn't have anything longer, and I said no. And she said, what about that TV story? And I said, that story's crazy. They don't want that story. And she said, I think we should send that story. So see, she sent the story. Okay, yes, there is a story here. And then um, I, I keep a spreadsheet of all my submissions, and uh, I probably submitted 
seven or eight hundred times in the last two years. To the New Yorker? No, not to the New Yorker. I mean, (laughs) everywhere. And I I write them all down, you know, where I submitted, when I submitted, when I get an answer back. And and that's the only story I never wrote down in my submission list because it just seemed completely ludicrous that she was sending that to the New Yorker. And they said yes quickly. And then this, this is what surprised me is that they said yes, and within what, like two or three weeks, it was in an issue. It was in an issue the next week. Oh, really? It was that fast? Well, it went into the issue. I'm sorry. It took a, like a, a week after that for them to actually print and put the issue out. But yeah, I heard from them on a Thursday, and everything had to be done and in that coming Monday. How much editing did they do? They cut a lot. They, um, I mean, it was written. I mean, it was written for a horror fiction class. It was so they cut a lot of the darker stuff. As the guy goes uh, completely insane while he's watching television, and and the violence on TV escalates, they they toned it down a lot. They did. And were you? Did, how did you feel about that? Were you pissed, or was it good editing? Or I was pissed at the time. Um, and when the story ended up in the book, I insisted that it be the you know the real version of the story. Now when director's I, cut. Director's cut. <laughs> yeah. Now when I read it over, I mean, I see why they did it. You know, there and there are things that I think they should not have cut, and then there are things that I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, I can I can understand. I mean, you know, they have a reputation, and they're, they're smart people. Yeah, they were very smart people. I mean, that's stupid to say, but they worked really fast, and and they had good reasoning behind everything, and they were very clear. I mean, they were they were professionals, Brad. Professionals. <laughs> So, uh, so the TV gets into the New Yorker. You go to the newsstand. You pick up the New Yorker. Your story's in it. Like, how much has that changed? How much that changed for you? Like, from your from a writing career wise, you know. I mean, obviously, personally, it's a big thrill. But I mean, do you feel like there was a palpable shift in your career at that point? Did it? Did it really? I mean, obviously, it helped you get your book deal. Mm-hmm. That's not. That's not nothing. No, that's something. You know, and like there is like a. I mean, when the New Yorker publishes you as a fiction writer, that that is has a legitimizing effect, especially yeah. among other writers and people who are kind of in the literary world. No. Yes. Yeah. My parents were very happy. Yeah, of course. I think they were probably happier about the New Yorker thing than about the the book. Actually, yeah, right. That's not true, but they were very happy. If you go to my parents' house, that that issue is lying open to my story on the dining room table. That's sweet. But I mean, any kind of like, what were the, what was the after effect, or like, what what happened, or was it kind of like an anticlimax, where like you go to the newsstand, you pick it up, and you're like, okay, well, there it is. <laughs> well, I mean, what beyond the book deal? I don't know. I mean, uh, a lot of people wrote me a lot of letters. I got a lot of emails. Uh, strangers. Strangers, yeah. Who read the magazine? Mm-hmm. What'd they say? Any weird ones? Well, they're all weird. I mean, it's a crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> this happened to me, man. <laughs> and if you read the story, you know, I mean, yeah. so, but I mean, was there anything, was there any particular letter that stands out that you could talk about? There was nothing worrisome. Okay. I mean, everyone was very nice. Everyone loved it. People. Did any women make passes at you or anything? Like, I, I feel like I know you. I, I would never comment on something like that. Probably. You never would. Come on. Was there a fan? Was there any fan mail from females that, inclu- that included pictures or anything like that? No one ever sent me a picture. No. no one did. Any men? None? No. Nothing like that? No, nothing like that. Um, so, yeah. So, the, the story goes up, and then how soon after that did uh, the collection sell? It happened pretty much at the same time. Um, my agent had gotten it to the people at Penguin and the people at the New Yorker, like, right at the same time. 
And it, I mean, it, I think probably it was like three or four days after that I had a deal. God, that's a dream. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. And then uh, afterwards, like uh, in terms of like your your output online, like you publish a lot in um, literary journals. You're published all over the web. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in a lot of different uh, fiction venues. Uh, like, have you, con- have you just continued basically the same? Has there been more of a demand for your work? Has any of that interaction changed or no? I've been solicited more by journals. I, I pretty much stopped submitting right after that. Um, because I was trying to figure out. I mean, I didn't know if I was even allowed to send out more stories or what would happen with the book, and um, and I really haven't gotten back into submitting since then. I mean, since the book sold, I've pretty much just been working on the book. Just what editing and refining mm-hmm. and getting it ready. Yeah. And the TV, the story that appeared in the New Yorker, which is called the TV, that is included in an, an appendix, essentially. Yep. And at your insistence, there's a disclaimer. Yeah. Right? I mean, it just says that this was not intended to be in the original collection. It says that it's not part of the same project. It's not part of the same project. No. So you had to, I mean, and you had to go back and forth. I mean, that Penguin obviously wanted to include the New Yorker story. You didn't. Mm-hmm. And that was the compromise. Yep. Well, that's cool, though. I mean, come no, on. No, it's great. And I'm, I mean, I was kind of upset about it at the time. But now I think it's a good thing. I mean, it shows that I can write things that are different than the very short ones. And a lot of people like it. Yeah, it's a great story. It's really a great story. Um, so I want to go back a little bit because I'm curious about Harvard. I think because I think this is it. I mean, I, I find that whenever I talk to people who went to uh, institutes of higher learning that are in the upper echelon, I find myself ex- exceedingly fascinated by it. And I want to know more because I was like a really good student in high school until like the tail end. And then I basically just didn't want to go to college. That really was the truth. If if I had been left to my own devices and hadn't been prodded, I probably wouldn't have gone. I just ran out of gas. I had worked really hard uh, in my youth from, like, junior high until, like, the middle of my sophomore or junior year. And then I was just like, "What? I'm tired. I'm, I want out of here. That was kind of how I felt. And so I just wasn't motivated, and I didn't have uh, the focus or the clarity or whatever whatever it is that you have to have to apply uh, and I had the grades, you know, and I think I had the SATs. I could have gone somewhere um, like, I don't know if I could have gotten into Harvard, but I think I could have gone to possibly an Ivy League school. Like, what was it like there? What experience did you have that I missed out on? <laughs> I'm really probably not the best person to ask about Harvard because I went to Harvard and then I pretty much just went to the movies for four years. I was a film major and never really been that good on going to class or caring a lot about class. But you, I mean, okay, did you graduate with honors? Yeah. And you didn't go to class at Harvard? Well, sometimes I went to class. I don't know. I, I went to the movies. I mean, I was there to study films. So. What did you get on your SATs? 1490. Yeah. But, like, did you, did you ace the math? Yeah, Pretty I, much? I got one wrong on the math. I got the first question wrong on the math. You remember. I remember. <laughs> I remember. This is like Goodwill Hunting. I remembered is- the entire math section of the SATs. Like, verbatim. I mean, when I went home from it, I was like, well, I think I got them all right. And, like, went home and I, like, wrote out the questions on paper and went over them in my head. I mean, I don't know what the hell's wrong with me, but I could just, I saw the whole test for, like, weeks afterwards. I'd be going over the questions and I was like, I think I got them all right. Oh, my God. I really think I got them all right. And then... This is why you went to Harvard and I didn't. Yeah. It's all clear now. What was I thinking? I'm, I'm delusional. The funny thing is when I went to Harvard, I mean, I went thinking I was going to study math. 
And uh, the first week they had a math placement test. And I had, um, I had, my high school wasn't very good, Brad. We didn't have like AP classes or anything like that. And um, we had a calculus class, but it was really pre-calculus. I mean, we did a little calculus maybe the last semester. And so when I got to Harvard and we had this math placement test, the first half of the test was like, you know, normal math that I knew how to do. And so I did that and handed it in, and then they said, okay, now anyone who's done calculus should stay for the calculus half. And so I got up to leave, and the guy was like, you haven't taken calculus? And I was like, well, I took a class called calculus, but it was really just pre-calculus. And he said, you should take the test. So I took the test, and I got a negative four on the test, and that was the end of my math career right there. That was it. That was just because you hadn't gotten a chance to take calculus yet, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. You probably could have gotten it. I, I probably could have. The thing was, when I got when I got there, my roommates pretty much placed into you know third year math, like, and they were all math people. <clears throat> that just by happenstance, you just happened to live with other math people, or was it like by design? I have no idea. Or everyone's a math person at Harvard. <laughs> I, I really don't know how they sorted us out. But yeah, I just looked around. I was like, wow, I, I would have to work four years in order to get to where my roommates are today. I'm just not very work. Work. I don't like to work. <laughs> <laughs> so then you, uh, you, but you love the movies. Yep. Which was that part of an out? Like was that uh, kind of an outgrowth of the fact that you didn't have a TV? I mean, we- yeah. Well, uh, we didn't have a TV, but my dad loved movies, so we'd go to the movies every weekend. I uh, used to take us into New York to go see like old Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton movies and foreign films and all kinds of inappropriate for young children type movies. So, yeah, movies were always really important. Okay, so they had a big impression on you, and then you ma- you can major in film at Harvard. They have a film degree program? No, they don't call it film. They call it visual and environmental studies. I don't know what the environmental part is. I have no idea. But it was film and photography and art and graphic design. Um, it was in the basement of this terribly cold, miserable building off on the edge of campus. And yeah. were you in class with anybody who's gone on to, I mean, or were you at Harvard with people that are now notable in some way? Or uh, Darren Aronofsky was there. He was a year ahead of me. Um, I didn't know he went to Harvard. Mm-hmm. He made it. He made a thesis film. His senior thesis film was incredible. It was amazing. It, it, everyone was doing. I mean, it was pretty much a, in terms of film production, is mostly like documentary and animation. They had a really good animation department. Um, but generally it was like you, you got a camera and you went out and you shot some things and you edited it together and you called it an art film. That's how my... Then, I went to film school at Colorado. That's how yeah. it was. It was like, I'm in the park. And right. Yeah, look, it's, it's a squirrel. It's a visual poetry, man. <laughs> yeah. Then at the end of the year, they have a, a big screening and they show all the student films and so they show everybody's stuff. And then in the middle of it, suddenly there's a movie, like some some guy made. It's like, like Citizen Kane. Yes. Yeah. And it was just. I mean, I don't even. It wasn't. I don't even remember what it was about. But it was just like he had, you know, he had a cinematographer, he had lights, he had like a soundtrack and a story. I mean, he made an actual movie, and I, I just could not believe it. I was like, who is that guy? And it was there. The rest is a hit. The talent was there. Yeah. It was obvious. More than talent, it was just drive. Like, obviously that was what he was doing, and he wasn't fucking around. You know? Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. I mean, I felt like in film school it was a similar situation. There were 
mostly people dropped out. I felt like the people who were really serious just dropped out and went and made a movie. That's mm-hmm. what, like, I mean, Trey Parker and uh, Matt Stone, the guys who created South Park, went to Colorado and they dropped out. They they made like a really funny. I want to say they went their student film that they made was called The Giant Beaver of Sri Lanka. <laughs> And they literally had a guy in a beaver suit running around campus, like attacking people. And it was like, you know, apparently like hysterically funny, but they made Cannibal the Musical. I think that's what it's called. And then, uh, you know, we're like sleeping at this like animation studio in Denver or whatever and making the first little South Park characters and then came out to L.A. and that was it. But I feel like that level of focus and drive, it's like it's so clear. Everything else is pushed to the side. They find ways to raise money. You know, it's it's just they want it more. Yeah. You know, uh, so yeah, so like your degree at Harvard in, in uh, film or in well, I forget what the degree is called. Visual and environmental studies. <laughs> Did you feel when you got out of there that you were? I mean, the, the idea was always to come out to Los Angeles and try your hand as a screenwriter. No, a director. I never wanted to be a screenwriter. You wanted to direct. Yeah. Did you ever direct anything? Not after college. You just came out, and then, why not? I mean, was it was just like. Um, well, I applied to film schools for directing, and I did not get in. Fascinating. From Cause, Harvard. Because apparently they didn't want my, like, you know, four-minute-long piece of visual poetry. You, oh, so you had to send in your reel, and that mm-hmm. was it. Yeah. What was the visual poetry? No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, mainly what I sent was animation. I, I used to do cartoons, which I really love doing. Um, and actually, what I write now is kind of a lot like that. Yeah. When I think about it. Um, yeah. But no, I didn't get in for directing, so then the next year I reapplied as a screenwriter because I knew I could probably get in because I write good, you know. Well, sure, yeah. So you got into um, AFI. AFI. And what was, uh, it was just like screenwriting and directing or just screenwriting? Just screenwriting. I, I was hoping that I'd be able to transfer over into directing after the first year or so. But then I saw what being a director actually entailed and I didn't really want to It's do a it. bitch of a job. Yeah, you have to get up at like 4 a.m. every day and tell everybody what to do and have answers for everybody's <laughs> questions. And you have to pay for everything. So so what's the... Sh- I mean, the, you do the screenwriting, uh, you get out of AFI, you get you pick up a few jobs. I mean, have you done some screenwriting work, paid screenwriting work? And Yeah, I was a screenwriter for probably five, six years maybe. And then what what causes you to shift into writing fiction and short fiction in particular? Was it just the level of control... You just found yourself doing it in your downtime? It really happened by accident. I mean, what happened was when I was a screenwriter, I had a screenwriting partner. And when that, that partnership kind of dissolved because we had completely different tastes about everything, like everything, you know. And so uh, when we finally stopped, I started trying to write a screenplay by myself, and I just could not do it. Like, I couldn't structure a screenplay. And That, that strikes me as odd, considering how mathematically you approach writing fiction you know what i'm saying the screenplay is such a defined form it seems like that would lend itself well to your particular approach or sensibility yeah but i mean the the form is not a formula i mean it can't tell you what to write the form is something that you sort of like once the thing is there then you figure out what the what's working what isn't by looking at it through a a lens sort of of structure um but uh, yeah, that was the hard part about screenwriting for me is that that structure was sitting there. You could buy all those books that would show you all these pictures of what it was supposed to look like and what happens where. But I was always like, but what happens? What? <laughs> I don't understand. Right. <laughs> I just could not do it. And so then I decided that I would take a class on storytelling and that maybe that would help. So I took that class that Dennis Etchison taught. And then 
when I actually first started writing the stories that ended up in this book, I, I really thought that I was just writing story ideas, which I would then turn into screenplays. And it was only after I'd written, I don't know, like 10 or 20 of them that I realized that they were stories. Okay, so this is fascinating because it almost, I, I wonder if the creative process was freed up by the fact that you didn't realize entirely what you were doing or your intention was different. You know what I'm saying? It was loose. It was like, oh, these are just sketches or I'm, I'm just being creative for the purposes of writing a screenplay someday. Yeah. You think sure. so? I mean, yeah. instead of sitting down and be like, now I have to write a book. Right. Which can be like a heavy deal. You know, yeah. it's these, I'm going to sit down tonight and write 800 words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see what happens. See what happens. And that worked well for you. Yeah. I mean, writing a screenplay is just, I'm not going to say it's impossible because people do it. Yeah. But it's daunting. It is. And the thing, too, is that, like, uh, you know, uh, again, this might just be the cynical per- part of me coming out, but I feel like if you're not writing a blockbuster or something with, uh, you know, a pirate in it or a vampire or uh, huge special effects set pieces, like, increasingly it's so difficult. Uh, or I guess, like, a super broad comedy, most of which don't make me laugh. I have very specific tastes. It doesn't feel like there's room in the movies. We've talked about this before at length. I mean, it's a very frustrating process. It's hard to get things sold. Um, I don't know. I feel like movies are sort of, in some ways, mirroring, or maybe publishing is mirroring the movies, but there is definitely less and less space for, you know, art films or quirky literary fiction. And, you know, getting a story collection like yours through all the hoops. Uh, is an unusual case getting a story published in the New Yorker. I mean, what are the mathematical odds of that? You know, that's very, very unlikely. But um, at the same time, uh, there's a part of me that looks at your work and goes, okay, these stories are really short, um, which in no way, you know, diminishes their quality. They just happen to be short. And they incorporate, and they're very, uh, just like we were talking about earlier, it sounds silly, but they're story-driven. There's not a lot. There's no backstory. There's no um, um, the, the chronology is linear. It's you know uh, they can be digested easily. The language isn't super super tricky. You're not going to force somebody to be checking the dictionary every five seconds. Um, but there's a depth there, and it kind of it kind of nags at you. I, that's how I feel. It's like oh okay. Like I always feel like when I read one of your stories that like at the end of it, I go that was great, and it it just stays with me. Like good, like it's a good, nice. yeah, it's nice. And, and, um, there's also a supernatural element and I, I guess I can kind of see that it's got this like very unique appeal, but it's an appeal that's very of its time. I don't know. You didn't preconceive any of that. It's sort of just like a happy accident in a way. Yeah. I mean, just in the era of short attention spans, a 1500 word short story that has real intelligence and real story and like a sense of real imagination and playfulness uh, and excitement and danger and all the stuff that's, you know, that people love going back to when they were children. Like there's something very uh, childlike, you know, there's, there's a lot of play in your stories. Like anything could happen truly. Uh, And I think people appreciate that. And I think they especially appreciate um, when they can get through it in their busy day to day life, but also they appreciate like the cumulative power of it having read several of them in succession or the whole collection. Great. Yeah. (laughs) You'll take that, right? 
So, uh, okay, so you're out of Harvard, you're at AFI, you're working as a screenwriter, you're starting to write these stories. Um, is it okay? I mean, there is there is like this incident in your life I've heard bits and pieces about it. Is it something you can talk about? When I went crazy? Yeah, I mean, you wrote about it on The Nervous Breakdown. It's like this great essay uh, or memoir piece called, what was it called? The, the Worst Part About Being in the Mental Institution. The Bad Thing. About the Bad Thing. And it's like, you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderfully funny. It's also really touching and honest. Like, what happened? Well, basically what happened is I started writing stories and I got really excited and I stopped sleeping. And then I didn't sleep for about a week and I went completely insane. And then I ended up cutting my throat open with a pair of scissors. Good God. That's insane. I mean, so when you say you got excited, like you went into a manic phase, basically? Yeah. It was pure mania. Yeah. And so um, you couldn't have gone to sleep if you wanted to. I, I tried sometimes, but I was also, I mean, I became delusional really, really fast, like probably on like maybe day two. And then, and then, then it got worse after that. Yeah. But um, part of it was that I was convinced that I was going to die the second that I went to sleep. So that made it tricky. So it was just a neurochemical imbalance, essentially. I guess. I mean, you know, but but how did did they diagnose it? I mean, it was a uh, mania. That's what that you would call it. Yeah. I, yeah. I am apparently manic depressive. So had had you ever had a, a mania before? Nope. That was it. That was it. So it was a one-time thing and. You weren't, like, suicidal or anything. You were just having these kind of, like, delusional thoughts. Well, I didn't start out suicidal. I mean, I was never suicidal, even when I cut my throat open with a pair of scissors, which sounds pretty suicidal. Right, right. I mean, it's a unique situation. It wasn't like you were like, woe is me, and life sucks. It was just like you were experiencing an imbalance. Right? I I was very confused, Brian. So, so not to you know, not to belabor the point or stay there for too long, but like you had this crazy week, you weren't sleeping, mm-hmm. you wind up like getting someone saved you, or you call the the cops or the nine one one. Is that right? I was saved. Yeah. 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 Thank God. Yeah. Well, I don't. I, I don't think I would have died anyway. I mean, I didn't hit an artery because. Well, it's a long story, but I wasn't aiming for an artery. I was. You, you like knew. You're so smart. You probably like knew. You know. No, I had no. I had, I was never thinking about arteries. I was. All right, fine. Okay, I had become convinced. No, this is too crazy. It's too crazy. I don't know. Very crazy. Um, I had become convinced that I was Satan, and that I had created the world in the moment that I broke away from God, and um, that this world was hell. And I was trying to uh, figure out how to fix it and reunite this world with God, so everyone could be happy and then not have to live in this horrible place anymore so I spent a week trying to figure out how to do that a lot of it involved writing love stories for a while I thought that if I wrote enough love stories that that could raise the love quotient in the world do you still have those stories or no um I'm 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 curious have you ever read them are they they worth a shit or are they just like completely they're probably brilliant (laughs) I mean there are some stories in my book from that period um trying to remember exactly which one i don't think any of them are love stories uh yeah no the, the problem with writing love stories is that I, I was not very good at writing love stories i, I think i maybe wrote two or three and one of them was about my cat you know um yeah i gave there's, up. there's no love quite so pure as the love of a pet i mean it's honestly true. no it's true it's uh it's beautiful so you write these stories 
um, eventually the stories aren't working. You decide that there's, they're not working, and then... Yeah, well, yeah, and then I spent some time walking up and down the streets of Echo Park preaching about the Lord, you know? Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like just Because this is so unlike you. You're not a guy who would... Yeah, speak no, out in the streets. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm an atheist. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're a quiet, you're a quiet gentleman too. I mean, you know, you're you're somewhat reserved, I would say, or at least not prone to. Yeah. Also, to, it was bad because they they didn't speak English, so yeah, okay. It's, it's hard to communicate <laughs> the Lord's message. Oh my goodness! So you're communicating the Lord's message, and then it didn't work. It just nothing worked. It's really hard to reunite hell with heaven. Yeah, I mean, I tried. That's a big. It's a big. So I was really tired. I, I hadn't eaten. I don't think I, I think I lost about twenty pounds in about a week. Wow! And uh, I mean, I'd, I'd walk places. I like going up the stairs to my house. Like my heart would be pounding so hard from the exertion. Yeah, just from being from being uh, undernourished and stuff, and not having slept. Not having slept for seven days. Right. Yeah. It was a bad scene. Yeah, and so then uh, somebody saves you. Like, did you did you call somebody, or did somebody happen to walk in on you, or was it kind of like? Yeah, um, my ex girlfriend came over for lunch. And she was like, we got to get you out of here into a hospital. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Essentially. That's, yeah. You were conscious? I was conscious. I was sort of sitting in the bathroom against the wall, um, having tried my last-ditch attempt to to save the world. But, yeah, there was a lot of blood, but I wasn't going to die. I don't think I would have died eventually. I probably would have. Well, I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. thank God, you know. So then... You, you get medical treatment, you wind up, and you wrote about this, you wind up in uh, a mental institution for, what, a couple days or a few? I was in the hospital, for, I mean, L.A. County, for two and a half weeks, you know, sewing up my throat and then just kind of sitting around. And then when it was all over, then I went to some place in Pasadena, like a fancy mental institution. I've, I've been told I'm not supposed to call it a mental institution. That's belittling. Beautiful, yeah, beautiful grounds. I yeah. can see it kind of. Like, no, I don't know. What, they never let us outside. Oh, I mean, okay. I was, like, locked in. They were. They, they thought I was going to try and kill myself. I right. was like, dude, I'm not. Who do you think I am? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to save you people. But, but did you, when did you, did they, did you come out of the mania at that point? Or did it continue? I mean, were you continuing it when you were in, in the hospital? Um, the first two or three I mean time is a little iffy the first two or three days in the hospital they thought that I was depressed they thought that I tried to kill myself because I was sad right know? right and so they put me on antidepressants which are the worst possible thing you can give someone who's manic mm. so those three days in the hospital were way worse than anything leading up to them where I was I mean I was hallucinating like crazy fascinating that was literally hell that was the worst then after a while they um talked to me and found out what had happened and then they were like oh <laughs> so is it like negligent medical treatment no, not to get back to my you know, mistrust I, of doctors but how could they not uh, well, they can't diagnose mania well they can if they can talk to you but i couldn't talk because my throat had oh been okay okay and also i was um you know half asleep and out of my mind yeah and you know who's i don't know i was crazy yeah um so I finally, you know, I wrote some notes to the psychiatrist in a very... Did you know that you were manic? Or had no, no idea? I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew something was very wrong. Yeah. Like <laughs> prior to that? Or do or you mean like at that point? At that, I mean, in that week, I knew something was very wrong. But. And it was just all of a sudden the chemicals just tipped or something happened. There was no trigger or like... You, well, no, I mean, there was a... The trigger, I think, was that I took this class and figured out how to write stories. After all this time, I kind of like got it and 
you know, like Darren Aronofsky, I just started doing it, you know, and I put everything I had into writing those stories. And I would write late, late, late into the night. And then the next day I'd get up early because I wanted to write more. And then I'd write all day and then I'd write all night. And then at, at one point, that <laughs> the bad moment was when I was up late writing and I was like, I should go to sleep. And I said, no, you know, I've slept enough in my life. Now I'm writing, and that's all I have to do now. And that was it. And that was it. And then I just, then, so then for a while I did not sleep on purpose. And then apparently, because I am bipolar, once you don't sleep, then it gets even harder to sleep. And so then after a couple of days of that, I mean, I just, I drove myself crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, no, like, people who do, like, lots of amphetamines and stay up for days and days, like, the hallucinations aren't from the amphetamines, it's from the lack of sleep. No. Don't do it to anybody. But you had no, like, inklings of this as a child? I mean, was it something that... I mean, I've always known that if I get excited about something, then it's hard to shut my brain down. It sort of takes on a life of its own. Like, I I used to play video games when I was little, and I had to stop that after a while because I get so wrapped up in the video game that I would be playing it even when I wasn't playing it. Well, it's like you take the SAT and then you go home exactly. and, you, and you write down all the questions. Yes. I get obsessed with things. Yeah. So. But that's a bit, that can work for you. I mean, that's not necessarily all a bad thing. Yeah. It's, like, it's like my, I have this great envy of people with ADHD because I, I envy their energy level. I'm like, these people have it all. They're never tired. They're never getting They pop out of bed. <laughs> oh, whatever. Getting stuff done is overrated. I just want to have energy. Yeah. Um, so... You come out of, I mean, in the mental hospital itself or the mental institution or whatever you want to call it out in Pasadena, you're talking to somebody, there's group therapy, they're just monitoring you, essentially. They're giving you proper medication at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. That's the end of that story. Once they figured out that I was manic and not depressed, then they took me off the antidepressants and put me on lithium and, like, immediately, like, I was just fine. I mean, I just woke up and I was like, oh, hey, I'm back. Wow, that was crazy. Glad that's over. And then everyone's staring at me like, you know. So it really is chemical. I mean, it's like, it's ama- it's extraordinary. Yeah. It was. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just whatever, whatever lithium does, whatever your particular body makeup and neurochemistry is, you take this and everything just re-stabilizes. Yeah. It's fascinating. So you came out, I mean, just to finish the story, and I might have this wrong, but like you came out of uh, the mental institution, came home, sat down, and the first story that you wrote after that whole experience was the TV. No, no, no. The TV was what I wrote that started the whole thing. The TV was the first story I ever wrote. And that led you into it. Mm-hmm. So you wrote that as you were on your way in. Yeah. So you got really excited after taking that class and, and wrote the story that would wind up in The New Yorker how many years later? Five years Wow. Um, I, yeah, I wrote that story, and then I wrote... Then I started kind of refining and figuring out what I wanted to do, and then I wrote a lot of the shorter ones that actually ended up in my book. I think maybe the first seven or eight stories in my book were written before I went to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. And then they were written in the in like the time kind of immediately preceding it? I mean, it was... Mm-hmm. You just... Well, yeah, probably in like the month leading up to it. So seven or eight in a month. And then those were worked over after you got past that uh, whole incident. Yeah. You did revisions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, ever had, have you ever had a story to shoot out of your hole? No yeah. revisions necessary? I mean, like, or very minimal? Yes. Yeah, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes it happens, yeah. What, like, what story? You have one in, can you think of one, or no? 
There's a story called Columbo, which is not in in my book, but was published in Keyhole Magazine, which just came out. Um, just, I mean, it's very short. It's probably two or three hundred words. It's one of my favorite stories, and it just came out beginning to end, and I never changed the word. That's gotta that's gotta be great. Yeah, it's really nice. It's really nice. I mean, it's hard. The reason why it's always hard to get the endings is that um, I mean, it's like it's like a dream. I mean, basically, I'm sort of dreaming on paper, you know. But then, as opposed to a dream, you have to resolve it at the end. And and so the third act is always the hard part because you have to sort of step back and see what the story's about and figure out how to get out of this nightmare situation. Yeah. So that's why the third act is always hard because the, the problem is in you. And you have to figure out what you're doing wrong, what you're not seeing in this story. So if I write some some really shitty first drafts, will you diagram them for me and tell me what I'm doing wrong? You could make a fortune doing this. I'd be so miserable. Yeah, right. Because I would just be... Everyone would just be, like, downloading their misery onto you and saying, fix me. Yeah. Oh, that would be great, though. I might have you do it with, like, at least one. I've had you read... I forget. Oh, no, it was the Santa Claus script. I love your Santa, Santa script. Well, just the idea of it. But did I have you read it? Or no, I had you read a, a draft of the bitter comedy that I wrote. Right, right, yeah. No, I would love to read the Santa Claus one. The Santa Claus one is a genius. Man. Well, maybe we can co-write that one. I gotta take. We gotta take it apart. Uh, it's like it's a good. It's a good high concept idea, but like mm-hmm. just the idea that I'm writing a Santa Claus script. Yeah. I think I need to get over myself. You gotta revel in it. I gotta revel in it. I gotta love Santa, dude. I write stories about like a moose jumping out of an airplane. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't question it. See, that's the thing. I'm trying to be cool. That's the problem. I want like my Santa Claus to be like bitter and like, you know, I, you know, make like witty asides and mm-hmm. you know, that's the problem. I need to just embrace. Yeah. Um, so you, ha- you write that, you know, you have this strange kind of unique niche uh, there. There aren't, you know, I, I can look at a lot of writers. You can kind of group them. And I don't think there are a lot of writers who are doing what you do. I think that's a, a strength of yours. I've always said this to you. It's like, this is like unique. You know, you read a Ben Laurie story and you're like, wow, like that was pleasurable. <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, you don't actually say that, but you think that maybe, okay. or I liked that, you know, might be a more like a normal way of putting it. But, um, I wonder, you know, I'm going to be interested to see the response. I think critically you're going to do really well. I think critics, are, you know, I think the reviews are going to be positive. Um, you know, I, I'm curious to know, like, do you have a vision for how you go forward? Like, do you want to write a novel? Are you just going to keep doing your stories? Are you going to try to do the screenplay? Or is it just kind of like, we'll see? Well, I'm adapting one of the stories from the book into a screenplay right now. At somebody's request? Or just on your own? They're, uh, not at anybody's request, although people are now waiting for it. Like, I mean, people people want to read it. Can you and say which story? It's, you... uh, it's the UFO. It's called UFO Love Story. Okay. Yeah. Um, as for writing other things, you know, I, I this whole book happened because I stopped planning what I was going to right. write. And it's... Uh, I'm just going to stick with that. Yeah, that's another thing I need to do. Just like in, I don't know. I love that. There's like, it's like you just uh, let it be fun. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I feel like that's what you kind of do. You allow yourself to have fun writing these things. And I think for me, um, a lot of the time, I think for some writers all of the time, I think for, you know, for most of us, it's grueling. No, it's, it's grueling for me too. I mean, it's not, writing the stories isn't, 
fun, really. Yeah, I guess. I so. mean, it's fun. I imagine you having fun doing this. It's like partially fun and partially terrifying. Okay. Um, well, that makes it more similar to me then. I, I just had this vision of you like up that house on top of a hill in Echo Park that you live in, and just mm-hmm. like you know, you have that quiet time. And you, you write these stories, and I think it's because they're so fun to read. Mm-hmm. And they're such, like, great play. They're such great imaginative yeah. play in your stories that it, it seems like, wow, he must have had a blast writing this. Yeah. There's a moose jumping out of an airplane. Right. You know, it's not some guy smoking a cigarette, brooding at the cafe. You know what I'm saying? There's none of that. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that in literary fiction, or it feels that way. And uh, it's nice to hear that it's grueling for you. Well, it makes me feel nice. I, I joke about the mo- the moose story, but even the moose story, is, I mean, it's about, <laughs> about the, moose, death. The, moose, the moose is a heroin addict. <laughs> and the, the moose story is about death and facing death. Like that's. But it makes it palatable to you, maybe imaginatively, to, to put it. It's like a moose. It's not like a. That's just how it comes out. It's just how you know. I don't. I didn't. I don't know. I had an idea, and it's just a moose standing in a field, and he looks up, and there's a man jumping out of an airplane. And that that's just how the story started. I didn't have any... I mean, I never know what they're about. It's usually afterwards, or as I approach the ending, that I get this sinking feeling in my stomach as I start to understand what I'm talking Once about. Once the nausea sets in, yeah. then you know you're on to something. And I'm like, oh, jeez. Oh, Christ. <laughs> now I have to face this for five years as I figure out how to end it. Uh, so... You're, you said earlier, you're an, are you really an atheist? Mm-hmm. Like you, you feel you're an atheist? Well, I was definitely an atheist up until I went crazy and met God. And, and then after that, it, I'm a little more of an agnostic. A little bit more open-minded about it. But I mean, like, it, it just what sparked it is that you're talking about this story that you're writing about death. And, um, you know, it's, it's, is it something you've thought about a lot? Or is it just sort of like, well, that was weird. That experience was huge. Maybe I'll just be agnostic now. Like, how much thought do you put into that sort of stuff? And how does it inform your work? Like, do you feel like there's some sort of um, higher power flowing through you, like that, that you're channeling some sort of, whatever you want to call it, you know, creatively? Or is it more just like, I'm Ben and I'm in my kitchen writing or whatever? You know what I'm saying? Well, it, it's not really either of those. It's more like um, sort of like having a conversation with a hidden part of me that exists somewhere behind me over to the side um subconscious yes you could say that. i mean for lack of a better word i right? prefer to put it over on the side <laughs> my shadow self yeah it's like um you mean you get an idea and then everything you say like something comes back from this other part of you like ideas you know when you get an idea it's, it's not it's never like i'm going to think of an idea and then somehow you construct this idea like somehow the idea just sort of comes into your mind you know from somewhere else and <laughs> you're connected to that somewhere else yeah that's the whole game yeah but it's not you know it's not i don't think of it as a higher power i think it's just the other half of my brain your wiring like the embedded wiring yeah interesting i hope it's not a higher power because that would be <laughs> terrifying <laughs> plus that diminishes the credit we can give you for right. writing such works of genius yeah <laughs> Um, well, it's been fun and enlightening, and I'm so happy. I mean, as your buddy, I'm so happy for you. Uh, I think the book's going to do great. Everybody should should pick it up. Stories for nighttime and some for the day. 
Um, I'm probably going to have to send you that Santa Claus script at some point. Definitely. And, uh, you know, I wish you all the best of luck with it, and we'll have to talk again down the road when the next one uh, comes about. Sounds good. All right, man. Thanks for having me. Sure, of course. All right, folks, there it is. That's Ben Laurie. The book is called Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day. It's available now in a very handsome trade paperback edition from Penguin. It's also available as an ebook. whatever your druthers. And uh, I do like that word druthers. What are your druthers? You can find Ben online at benlaurie.com. Laurie is spelled L-O-O-R-Y. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Laurie. He's also on the Facebook this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. Uh, the show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, and if you want to do something nice and Christmassy for this show, something compassionate, something warm-hearted, something that will make your soul grow and enhance your ability to have good relationships, uh, consider joining the TNB Book Club as a show of support. You pay $9.99 a month, and you get a brand new book delivered to your door every month. It helps me keep doing this, and better yet, uh, I, I interview all of the authors in the club, so you read the book, and then you can listen to me in conversation with the author. Uh, if you want to do it, if you want to join, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. It's easy. And, uh, you know, if you can't swing that, please go to iTunes and give the show a good rating. Maybe write a nice little review. That actually really does help, and it would be, uh, you know, very much appreciated uh, by me. So how else do I close? What are my closing notes on Christmas Day? Uh, I do want to say that I hope I didn't bum anyone out with the, uh, you know, the opener, with the analysis of compassion that I did on the front end. And uh, I will say that sometimes I do that kind of thing where I analyze something that's generally pretty benign and uncontroversial, and I wind up uh, fiddling with it excessively. And uh, I want to be clear that I do think it's good to be nice and compassionate. I'm not trying to say otherwise. I'm just saying that it can be a little bit confusing on an ethical and uh, you know, perhaps philosophical level when it comes to whether or not it's even possible to be entirely selfless unless, uh, you know, like, unless you're like Jesus and you get crucified in order to save the lives of other people. But that's quite a bit to ask of anyone. I'm certainly not asking that of anyone. And, uh, you know, today is on an abstract level, Jesus's birthday. So happy birthday to Jesus. And thank you to everyone for listening to this program. It's a great gift to me. And uh, I have been uh, really surprised, pleasantly surprised by the kind notes and the encouragement that I've received with regard to this show and uh, just the general overall level of support. It's been really wonderful. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, enjoy as much as possible the holidays, the holiday season. I know it can be a tough time for a lot of people. And uh, if that's the case for you, hopefully this podcast has provided a little respite. And uh, just remember, you know, if you're hyperventilating, if you're having a panic attack, Please stay away from the mall. Just stay away from it. Stay away from the gap. Stay away from retail. Don't go into Banana Republic. Resist the urge to get an Orange Julius. Don't do it. Step away from the food court. Uh, it's almost over, everybody. It comes and goes quickly. 2012, on the horizon, the Mayan apocalypse. It'll soon be upon us. Be nice to your neighbors. Be nice to complete strangers. Be patient. Stay calm. This is not meant to be taken seriously. And don't forget to take deep breaths.